Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 76 of Yoga Land. Today, Jason joins me, and we just decided to talk about yoga injuries, kind of expand on the conversation that Jill Miller and I started in episode 74. By the way, if you haven't listened to it, it's episode 74. I think I referred to it incorrectly in the body of the uh, interview. It's well worth listening to, and I'm going to have Jill back on the show again soon. I think it's just a great conversation for us to be having in the community Jason and I sort of present the array of different nuanced opinions about the topic, and I'm sure you all have a lot of opinions about it too. So if you would like to share those opinions with us, the easiest way to do that is to post on Instagram and use the hashtag YogalandStories. And I don't have a specific question this time. I would just like to know what you think about the conversation, if it brought anything up for you, and if there's anything that you wholeheartedly agree with or disagree with. That's how we all learn. Before we start the interview, I just wanted to mention that November 19th is the early bird deadline to register for Jason's 300-hour trainings in San Francisco at Love Story Yoga. So if you would like to learn more, you can go to the Love Story website, lovestoryyoga.com, and click on trainings and you'll find Jason's training and it'll give you lots of info. And if you have any questions, you can email support at jasonyoga.com. So that deadline again is November 19th, coming up really soon. Okay, and on to the interview. Hi, Jason. Hi, Andrea. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. <laughs> thanks for hosting this podcast so close to my home. Yeah, and you, and you love all the amenities, right? Like the, com- <laughs> yeah. the comfortable chair I it's have you amazing. sitting in. And, yeah. yeah. Oh, gosh, if people could see this. The fancy drinks. Yeah. So today we're going to talk about injuries in yoga. And you and I just decided after I talked to Jill Miller a couple episodes ago, at that time, we Jill and I talked about her upcoming hip surgery, which has now since happened, and she's doing well and on the road to recovery. But you and I decided we wanted to just expand a little bit on some of the things that Jill and I talked about. And I will just say right up front that I have many opinions that may seem at odds with, with each other on this topic. You have many opinions? I do. Wow. Surprise. So do I. <laughs> so who wants to go first? I don't know. You're the one that said you have opinions. So one thing that came up in, in the podcast with Jill, and when I listened back to it, I realized I didn't fully allow Jill to answer the question. So I'd like for you and I to talk about it. And That's good host technique. <laughs> oh my God. You're fired. <laughs> you're fired. We just got a little sidetracked because that's that's what women, know, women do sometimes. Oh, I'm not making no comment. Mm-hmm. So a question came in. It was actually from Melissa McLaughlin. That was, how can I help instruct my really flexible students in such a way that helps them, you know, to not overdo, but also doesn't make them afraid of their body? Yeah. That's a question. Are you going to answer it? That's where we're starting, it? baby. You're the professional. Well, you can't. The answer is you can't. The answer is there are inherent physical risks to everything we do, and all of those inherent physical risks to what we do pale in comparison to the physical risk of not doing what we do. Mm-hmm. You know, I think about this a lot, and I will try to answer Melissa's question, right? I spent a lot of time in teacher training programs, especially in advanced teacher training programs, 
trying to help students, teachers understand risk factors to the degree that we understand them and how to mitigate risk factors, especially in vinyasa yoga. And so I spent a lot of time talking about injuries and minimizing injuries and so forth, so much to the point that it starts to sound like this stuff is scary and dangerous, Mm -hmm. right? And that's when I want to step back and I do not deny that there's all sorts of common injuries that we can produce in this physical discipline, in the physical aspect of yoga. Mm -hmm. But I want to put it in the broader context, which is I think that all of the assumed physical risk that we take in yoga pales in comparison to the physical and the psycho-emotional risk of not Mm -hmm. doing yoga. Mm -hmm. I really do. I think, especially in the last couple of years, since a New York Times article came out, there's been a lot of conversation, which is good. So it was an article, just to kind of fill people in who who aren't familiar, it was an article written by William Broad, who's a journalist and actually a yoga practitioner. And he subsequently published a book. And his kind of whole take on things is that yoga is incredibly dangerous and people are not aware of that. And he cited a bunch of uh, really small studies yeah. that specifically honed in on shoulder stand, which is like a whole other ball of wax. Yeah. But That's what you're referring to. Yeah, so that's what I'm referring to. And without getting into the book and and sort of agreeing with components, but mostly refuting the the thesis, is for the past several years, fortunately, there's been a larger conversation about ways in which yoga can produce injuries in the body, right? And I think that this is a really important thing. I don't think that as yoga practitioners, we should be deniers. I don't think as yoga practitioners, we should pretend that we don't have these sort of common overstretch, overreach, overstress injuries. And at the same time, I just also want to put it in the context of the stuff is actually really good for us. Mm -hmm. It's really important to be embodied. It's really important to use our bodies. There's been new studies lately that that have been looking at the extreme physical risk of physical inactivity. Mm -hmm. So I don't want us to get into the situation where we're scaring our students, where we're scaring our community. We have to find the in-between roads where we can acknowledge that there are various regions of the body that take a high degree of stress in this practice. And we have to acknowledge that. We have to work with that. But we have to put it in the larger context of yoga is still largely a remarkably adaptable, and I believe, compared to every other physical activity I've ever done, largely a very safe, reasonable, responsible physical discipline. Mm -hmm. Now, that being said, what are some of the major risk factors? Well, I don't want to even say risk factor. I think that's an inaccurate way to start this conversation. I think what we want to say is, in the yoga practice, what might we be doing too much of? And I think that one of the things that's coming up is extreme range of motion. Mm -hmm. That we're we're starting to see and we're starting to understand that extreme motion, especially at specific junctions of the body, Mm -hmm. may not be in the world's (laughs) greatest interest, especially extreme passive range of motion. Mm -hmm. So these are some of the things that we have to be a little bit more attentive to. And I think it's a little bit outside of the scope of saying specifically, like, these are all the things that we need to worry about. These are all the things that we need to manage. Or maybe not. Maybe we can sort of get into it. I was able to formulate my my answer to Melissa's question while you were talking. And so I'll just say two things. 
this is basically dovetails with what you're saying, which is one of the things that I truly appreciate about Jill is that she just takes a lot of personal responsibility, right? For totally. Her, for what's going on in her body. So there is a level to which a certain amount of injury can be a doorway to self-discovery. Yes. I used to be like a very hypermobile person. And I, in the beginning of my practice, suffered from several different injuries. Like I had sacroiliac pain. I had hamstring attachment pain. I had some knee pain. These are all at various times. And I just happened to kind of pull back and get some outside support from chiropractors and physical therapists. And that whole thing, as much as I loathed it, because who wants to be in pain and who wants to have to stop doing your practice for a while? It was a way that I learned more about myself and it was a way that I learned more about the practice. And it's a way that you learn more about those locations of your body, Mm -hmm. right? That's also really important. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I'll say is having been a really hypermobile person who I struggle a lot more with maintaining strength than I do with maintaining mobility. And, you know, you've talked about this in lots of podcasts and on our blog. For people who have that predisposition, early on in my practice, the people who helped me get out of that rut were people who would actually come up to me in standing poses. I can remember being in um, side angle pose, okay? So you're like in warrior two and then you're your hand is down on the ground behind your shin or in front of your shin. And I would sort of sink into the bend of the knee. I would just right, like, right, right, my right, hips right, would right. just go really low because yeah, I didn't yeah. know. I had no proprioception. Yeah. So people would say to me, like, I want you to use a little more strength in yeah, this front thigh. I right. want you to lift your hips up. I want you to engage your right. leg. Teachers who pointed out my flexibility without saying, like, you're going too far. You're going to hurt yourself. Right, 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 right. right? And just helped me kind of engage more and feel strength and move my body into a a better alignment. That was what helped me as a very flexible person. Having said that, when you get into classes where people are putting their legs behind their head, there's just no way to help a super flexible person not overdo it if if that's what you're going to do. Right. I agree. But here's the thing. And this is something to for all of us to keep in mind, right? And I don't have an easy solution, but you bring up standing poses and you compare it to leg behind the head, right? But what we have to think about is the frequency scale too. So when you're doing standing poses, how often are you doing side angle pose? How often are you doing warrior True. two? How often are you doing warrior one? How all often are you doing plank, chaturanga, up dog? Mm-hmm. The reason we talk about chaturanga all the time is because of its frequency, mm-hmm. right? In terms of legs behind the head or sort of the extreme poses, these are largely infrequent poses. So for me, I'm actually even more concerned about making sure people maintain postural integrity and minimize local hypermobility in the common poses. When it comes to extreme poses, if you're going to play with extreme poses once in a while, I think that that's a, you know, that that's a reasonable adventure to take. I think that working on Yogi Nidrasana or whatever it is, like, it's not like I would rule that out. See, I actually would at this point. Well, that's fair. That's fair. I just think there are very few people for whom, Jill and I had a conversation about this. So she feels like Yogi Nidrasana and Samokanasana, which is like, you know, Upavisha, but with your soles of your feet. Side splits. Yeah, side splits. She really feels like those are the two that were the culprits for her. And, And I just started to think about it. It's like, we have to have the conversation and we have to look at what is the purpose of some of these poses. Totally. 
what are we really trying to accomplish? And she's like, you know, but they felt so good. And it's like, it's true. Of course they felt so good. Challenging the body and pushing the body feels good emotionally, feels good psychologically, feels good physically, feels good in the energy body, right? To move energy through places you probably never moved energy before. But at the end of the day, what's the real benefit to putting both legs behind your head? Well, I don't know. I don't know either. I mean, I just, I think it's, you know, one of the things you talked about in an earlier podcast is like, we have to use where we are when we are, um, I don't know how you put it. You said something like every yogi used all the modern tools at their disposal to do the practice. Right. We have to do that. I agree. So, okay. So let me tell you what I actually, even a moment ago, I said, the bizarre thing is I would need like 18 more reincarnations to get one leg behind my head, let alone <laughs> both legs behind my head. But I do have an issue when we start to go from correlation to causation because the the reality is we don't know mm-hmm. what finally is the straw that broke the camel's back with regards to dysfunction in the hip joint. Mm-hmm. We don't know. Mm-hmm. And I would also still continue to look at frequency. I would say, fine, if it is Samokhanasana, was Samokhanasana a regular part of a practice or was it a, a highly infrequent part of a practice, right? To me, it's the things that we're doing very, very, very regularly that are the things that we have to attend even more completely to. But I think that there are certain people, especially teachers, who might feel, quote unquote, pressure to keep advancing in their practice. Uh, So they are working on those poses a lot. Well, that's that's a separate issue. That internalization of pressure to go further as a psycho-emotional dynamic. I think that's a big part of the issue, though. Well, I don't disagree with that. I think that is something that, that we have to undone. I mean, the primary mechanism of injury in yoga is between our ears. There's no doubt about it. Mm -hmm. It's in our head. It's what we are driven to do and why we are driven to do it. But again, I don't want to make a defense of yogi nidrasana. Mm -hmm. But in this discipline, everyone that does it is going to be driven to find their physical threshold. Mm -hmm. Everyone is. That is how this is going to work, especially at a younger age. Right. And especially at uh, not even necessarily a younger age, but a younger experience level, right? Because there is such an association of yoga is about stretching and yoga is about range of motion and yoga is about flexibility, right? And that's only become even more so in the era of social media because it's because that range of motion then also becomes this quantifiable equity that we can put into a feed and and be you know, people like it. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I, I don't want to vilify anything, but, but I, the point I want to make is everyone is going to seek to find their sensory threshold. Mm-hmm. And if my sensory threshold is, you know, five degrees of motion in the, in the hip socket and someone else's is 20, someone else's is 40, everyone is going to go to their threshold. And so what we have to understand is certain thresholds contain more inherent risk because they start to affect structure more than others. That's where this is technically a very complicated conversation if we're going to go all the way to sort of the mechanism of injury, Mm -hmm. right? Which is the more a femur moves into, especially the more the femur moves into flexion, the greater probability 
that that femur is going to be running up against hard points mm -hmm. and compressive points and producing a sort of wearing down effect, mm -hmm. right? So I guess what I'm trying to get at, and again, this is sort of, this is a tough one. This is a big one for us to untangle in sort of general, right? Which is we have to understand that there's probably an implicit drive towards everyone that does this discipline to find their physical sensory threshold. And people with more intrinsic range of motion are going to go further. People with less intrinsic range of motion are not going to have to go as far. And the people that can go further have a greater potential for risk when it comes to violating their structure. Hmm. Interesting. And it's the extreme range of motion that can affect structure mm -hmm. more. That's when we're starting to talk not so much just about soft tissue overstretch mm -hmm. issues, but we're actually starting to talk about joint degradation. And yeah, joint capsule. So when after I got off the, the call with Jill, I remembered a, an anatomy column that I edited that Roger Cole wrote. Nice. And it was about Padmasana. And the thing that's just like so wonderful about Roger Cole is that- You should have him on a podcast. Oh, oh my. <laughs> He's going to be on very soon. But the thing that I appreciate so much about Roger is that he's a really adept, advanced practitioner, but he knows so much about anatomy and physiology that he's able to back out and say, okay, here's what we're dealing with here, people. Let's yeah. really figure yeah, out yeah. where our priorities are. Yeah. So we did a column on Lotus, and here is one little excerpt from the column. Sure. That's, this is interesting. It says, the problem starts at the hip joint. And he's basically just trying to describe how much rotation is required to do Lotus. Yeah. And that it's at the end of the day, that's not the most important thing to, to be able to meditate. Right. Okay? The problem starts at the hip joint where Lotus and its relatives require an astounding degree of mobility. In Baddha Konasana, bound angle pose, the ball-shaped head of the thigh bone must rotate outward in the hip socket about 100 degrees. Padmasana requires the same amount of external rotation, 100 15 degrees, just sitting upright. And the angle of rotation is somewhat different, making it more challenging for many students. When we combine the Padmasana action with a forward bend, as we do in Ardhabhata Padmottanasana, the total external rotation required at the hip joint jumps to about 145 degrees. To put this in perspective, imagine that if you could turn your thighs out 145 degrees while standing, your kneecaps and feet would end up pointing behind you. That's a lot. Yeah. So, but, so actually, he was talking about Ardhabhata Padmottanasana, not Lotus. He was he was talking about combining the rotation of Lotus with the standing forward bend. The standing forward bend. So, I, yeah, just to clarify that. But the reason I read that is again, like, not to vilify any pose, sure. but to actually kind of look at the humor in it. Right. The things we are trying to do with our bodies in yoga after a certain range of motion, for some of us, for some of us mere mortals, as Roger always used to say. It, it's laughable. And so we have to keep in perspective, again, like why we're doing what we're doing. Right. Totally. And why we're doing what we're doing is a very complicated answer. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. I just think it's important to, in this conversation, kind of, like you said, clarify where we are right now, which is, I think you made the really important point that and I hadn't really thought of it this way, that it is part of the practice and it's part of the psycho-emotional psycho part of the practice. And it's not a bad part of the practice to reach your own range of motion. But when you couple that with 
some poses that, in my opinion, might be outdated with modern social media, with pressure to compete in the teaching arena it's in modern of, social it's media. It's a lot of it's it's bad a lot. factors. For it's, sure. It's a lot. So, For sure. So like, For sure. So I think it's just valuable to just... And I mean, this is what you teach. So you might just be kind of thinking in your head like, well, yeah, I don't really need to say this again. No, this is what I say I teach. this all the time. This is, But, you know, we're, we're talking about wanting to be the most functional person we can possibly be. Like at the end of the day, that's what I believe people do, draws people to yoga because it makes us more functional. It makes us more agile in our bodies. It makes us sleep better at night. It calms the nervous system. It balances the mind. We have less, we feel less crazy, right? So we can function better in our jobs. That's what we want to do. So for me, like I I said this to you in the car the other day, one of the things that I appreciated about the conversation with Jill was this idea that, you know, 10 years ago, maybe more, maybe 15 years ago, when she started to have pain in her knee, which was really like a harbinger of pain in her hip, she just stopped doing certain poses. Totally. And I stopped doing Titibasana a couple years ago after my breast surgery because I have like so much scar tissue on my left side that when I would do this pose, which I think is like the most magnificent pose in yoga, I love it. I was a dancer. I think it's so beautiful. So I I had this like this association with it of just like, I just love it. But when I would practice it several days in a row, I would lose feeling in my left hand. <laughs> it took me a while to associate what the heck was going on because yeah. you don't use your, it's my, not my do- dominant hand. And then I was like, oh man, I'm pinching, you know, I'm compressing the shoulder. I'm pinching the thoracic outlet in a weird way. You know, and I have yeah. all this scar tissue and like axillary yeah. node scar tissue. I had to say goodbye to that pose. Right. But that was a personal decision based on evidence. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Yeah. And so this is where, this is the only place, like, again, like I don't want to be you know, like the stubborn old guy that is like unwilling to let go of something. Although I have kept that <laughs> fairly often. Did I just describe myself? I'm not going to rattle off any examples. Fair enough. <laughs> but my point on this is even in the thing that Roger quoted, did Roger say, and therefore this pose shouldn't be done? No, absolutely exactly. not. Absolutely not. Exactly. So what we have to understand is, I guess... The reason that I, I sort of am always making a plug for greater education and greater critical thinking is exactly because of this, is because we could hear that and then think, oh my God, this shouldn't be done. This is a bad pose. In which case, we, we aren't actually seeing the situation very clearly. I think that what we have to understand is we have to remind ourselves that especially with the range of motion in yoga... We're asking a lot of our body when we do yoga classes. We're asking a ton, Mm -hmm. right? And so we have to be that much more aware of the sensations and the signals and the things that we are doing consistently over time. And if I am regularly doing Padmasana and it's problematic for me, I need to back off. I need to stop. I need to figure out something else. I need to not be so stubborn. At the same time, I'm not willing to now say Padmasana or Ardhabhata Padmottanasana or Ardhabhata Padma Pachimottanasana are these bad poses that need to be taken out of a curriculum. Yeah. They, right? I, but, I, but I didn't read it that way. I didn't either. Yeah. But, and sort of to your point is I am very wary of isolating individual poses and associating a causative function okay. to this did that. 
And I think it fits really conveniently into our inner narrative of we always want an answer. Like we always want an answer, especially for something bad that happened, right? And I actually believe like, and again, this isn't, this isn't me saying, oh, whatever, do whatever, but it's to say, look, we have to be better and better educated about the actual mechanisms involved with extreme range of motion and hypermobility so that we understand it a little bit more. We need to be more judicious and probably more limiting in teaching the really hard extreme range of motion poses. And just the way that you present them. That's the last thing. And the most important thing is we need to stop glorifying this idea that yoga is about going further. Yeah. It isn't. It has nothing to do with it, right? And you're you're sort of talking about the your example of side angle pose, right? You needed a teacher that was educated and sensible enough to educate you. Mm -hmm. Because what is the lowest hanging fruit in every class? What is the easiest thing and the most common thing for a yoga teacher to say? Go further. Mm -hmm. And if we look at 99% of the instructions that are given, it's all about going further. Drop the front thigh. You're in a lunge. Drop the front thigh. Drop the front thigh. Don't drop the front thigh. Lift the back thigh. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So so we, we actually need sort of a fundamental cultural reappraisal about what we're looking to generate in this practice. And you use the word functionality, right? There's no functional reason to get a leg behind the head, but there is a functional reason to have strong legs. right? Mm -hmm. You know, there's no functional reason to get the leg behind the head, but there is a lot of functional reason to be strong and warrior too. And so this to me is this cultural thing where we don't want, I don't want to vilify the big range of motion poses, but I want to continue to help people change the day-to-day constant narrative about everything is going further, further, further. It literally, if you record instructions and you listen to them, you tell me what percentage of those instructions are trying to get your students to go further Mm -hmm. compared to the amount of instructions that are trying to help your students access parts of their body that they're not accessing Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or to wake up parts of the body that are underworking, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? And And so it is this deeply embedded cultural pathology, actually, of going further is just so deeply rooted into our consciousness, that that to me is what we have to untether, not the individual poses here and there. Because if we if we just start to take out individual poses here and there, but we don't fundamentally change the narrative, then we're not going to change anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely what I was trying to, to, to articulate, and I think you articulated yes, it better, totally. which is that the way that you present the practice is I think the bottom line here. And for me, reading that little blurb, the Roger Cole blurb, I remember when I worked on that column for him, no matter what I would do, I can do lotus on one side, not on the other, but I can't do Ardha Bhatta Padmottanasana without knee pain. And I'd worked on it for a long time. Different teachers told me different things to try, blah, blah, blah. When I read that blurb, what I felt was relief. Oh, I'm still doing this practice, even if I give up hurting my body to keep trying to do this pose. That's so important. You know the Paul Grilly thing where Paul goes around and shows people the different bones and the articulation points and so forth. Mm -hmm. And people finally get this sort of light in their head of like, We're all different. (laughs) We're actually, we don't all have the same 
range of motion potential. And you know how what most people feel? Thank God. Relief. Yeah. They feel relief. Yeah. They feel relief because they realize like, oh my God, it's not for lack of trying. It's yeah. not for lack of my spiritual debt. Yeah. You know, it's 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 because the head of my femur is actually sits in an acetabulum that is rotated a little bit further forward and there's no structural way that that leg can go there. Right. So if I keep pulling on it, it's just going to run into structure. Right. That is a relief for people. And I think for people to know that is just really empowering in case they drop into a class where the teacher doesn't know that. Yeah, you know? I mean, yeah, we're all, yeah, lear- we're all yeah. learning. And when I was a student and I started to really understand these things, I felt so much less pressure in a room to be doing what other people were doing at the same level. Or, you know, I really felt like I could take care of myself. And that's the whole point of this is to understand yourself so that you can make the best decisions for yourself. Yeah. The other thing I'll say is, and you, you know, you and I are just like, we don't really run in these circles. So, but I, I do think I, I used to be kind of a long time ago, I would run into more teachers who presented a little bit of magical thinking around uh, advanced poses. Okay. So I just want to address that head on and just say, you know, if any, if you are trying a pose and it doesn't feel good in your body and the teacher gives you five different things to do and looks at you expectantly and it still doesn't feel good in your body, it is within your control to just stop doing it. You don't have to give the teacher an excuse. You don't have to please them. You don't have to make them feel better that they haven't figured it out. You don't have to do the pose. And if they tell you that you're going to work through it, you're going to work through the pain or a popping sensation is working through the pain, they're wrong. Yeah, most Sorry. likely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's just, res- I'm just being responsible right now. I can, yeah. I can kind of talk this way more than you because you're a teacher and you don't want to but I'm not even thinking of anyone no, specifically. No, it's because it's because you sort of said it earlier, which is I am so far removed from teachers that behave in this way that I forget it exists. You know what I mean? It's like when you are a somewhat rational person, you forget that there are that there are crazy people. Yeah, and I haven't encountered it in many s- years, and, and but I, I imagine a, it must still be out there. And I have a ton of professional disagreements with colleagues who I totally respect. Yeah. Right. And I sort of bring this up all the time. It's like you and I have disagreements and there's no one that I respect more than you. It doesn't mean that like, if I say something that's different from one teacher or one teacher says something that's different from me, that doesn't mean that one's right and one's wrong. It actually sometimes does mean one's right. Yeah. 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 But the point is we can have professional disagreements, right? So I think I think a bottom line that we're getting to in all of this is it is very difficult to ascribe correlation to injury. It just is. It is. Unless there was a traumatic incident, it really is. Yeah, I'll buy that. Right? But that doesn't mean we should be blind. Right. That doesn't mean we should be blind. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't pay attention to people in this community who are having, who have done it for a long time and are having certain issues come up, right? right? Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that we want to remember is excess extreme range of motion presents more liabilities than functional opportunities. And benefits, yeah. Okay? Mm -hmm. And And again, the main reason that is is 
because extreme range of motion, extreme flexibility, has a greater probability of affecting the structure Mm -hmm. than just the soft tissues. Mm -hmm. I am at risk for overstretching soft tissues, but other people are more at risk for actually affecting their structure. My soft tissues actually limit me. They protect you, yeah, in a way. Because right? what you're saying is you're a little bit tighter. A than... little bit, yeah. <laughs> so for sure. just for people who aren't familiar with this yeah. way of thinking. So you're soft, you can't go as far in your joint range. Uh, and again, I, I can. You know, I'm, I, I actually can. Yeah. But I have to work really hard to do it. Mm. I have to try mm-hmm. to go further, go further, go further, go further. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So excess range of motion is probably a bigger structural threat than more limited range. That's of motion. typically what the thought. Right. Mm-hmm. Extreme yoga poses, especially extreme yoga poses that look amazing in Instagram, and plus even press up to handstands. You guys, like I, I don't see a press up to handstand. I've never seen a press up to handstand without at least one thing hyperextending extremely. Okay. Totally. So that falls in. Anything that is an extreme range of motion pose is going to present a greater risk Mm -hmm. than not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It just is. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't mean, in my opinion, that doesn't mean we shouldn't do certain things, but that means that we have to know what we're getting into and know the implied risk. Mm And, and we get to choose to take the implied risk or not take the implied risk, mm-hmm. okay? And then I think that the biggest thing is the cultural factors of over-praising and over-instructing and over-glorifying this idea that if you go further, then finally that little hole inside yourself will be filled up forever and always. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like we just sort of think like there's gold at the end of the rainbow. Like if we can just get this more motion only then. And if you find yourself in that psychology, step back. Because that psychology is where you are primed to override your native thresholds and not get what you want. Yeah. You know what I mean? It just, it just is. Yeah. I want to say another thing, which is one of the ways that my practice has changed a lot over the past few years, right? Which is I actually work harder to build strength and general conditioning than I ever have, including when I was a high school athlete. I probably work harder now, but I don't work as hard on flexibility and range of motion. And what I mean by that is actually the effort involved. So I don't do fewer quote unquote stretching or opening things than I used to but I don't try to go as far. I don't try to stay as long. I don't try to go as deep. I am much more mild in all of my stretchy stuff than I've ever been. I'm much more effortful in my strengthening stuff than I've ever been. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Am I making that clear? I am exactly the same, So it's not that I'm doing less stretching. Mm -hmm. It's that I am much more moderate intensity, Mm -hmm. shorter duration, more dynamic. That's another thing is all the long passive holds is something that has to be reconsidered. Mm -hmm. And everyone's starting to see that more dynamic and more mild range of motion stuff, less intense passive hmm. range of motion stuff. That's becoming my approach and many other people's approach that that pay attention to this this kind of work. Yeah, yeah. I want to read just a quote that Jill pulled out of the podcast. Sure. So it's from the episode that we did together. 
which episode was it? 73, I think. Anyway, it's just a nice little tidbit from that podcast. So she says, no one made me hold the pose. No teacher, no guru, no system. I held the pose and I did movements that were out of a healthy range for my joints. And I did them a lot. I don't blame yoga or dance or step aerobics or running or swimming or poor nutrition for my degenerated hip. All of these systems were feeders for my unquenchable thirst to move, feel, and cover the emotions I was afraid to express and feel. She's such a sweet person. Creating yoga tune-up, I thought that the yoga police would come after me. 11 years ago, when I coined the term yoga tune-up, I knew that my practice needed an actual tune-up. The overstretching was not serving me anymore. It wasn't about, here's one better than yoga. My challenge was to disassemble the minutia of the poses and make sure that my joint articulations were a good match. And if they're not, I'd modify the heck out of the poses or isolate components of the poses so that ultimately my whole body would get the pose but isn't necessarily being forced into one architectural shape that overtaxes certain joints while other joints go to sleep. I created Yoga Tune-Up for that reason, and that's what yoga is to me. It's this attention to all the blind spots in my body, mind, and interrelating that needed attunement. But that's perfectly so said. Well it's, said. I mean, I so well said. I know. She's so, she's it's so clear. And I'll say this. It's like not only is she taking responsibility for the injury, She's also like part of the language. She's not whining about it. Mm-hmm. She's not whining <laughs> about having having this surgery. Yeah, she's moving through it. Yeah, you know, it's just like she's paying for it. You know what I mean? Like this, yeah. she's paying for it. Yeah, and it's like coughing up the tax bill. Well, one of the things you know she I mean? said it's was like, she said, "Okay, I earned this. I owe this. Yeah, I did this. I owe this. Yeah." And I mean, just sort of speaking for me, I just want to step back and say that doing nothing or not dancing or moving or training or doing yoga is not a solution. It wasn't. And especially for her, she talks about it wasn't an option at that point in her life. you guys, you guys, like, we live a long time now. Yeah. Okay? So in the dark ages, you and I wouldn't be here to be worried about our stupid hip that we overstretch. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. So we're in these bodies and we're living in them for a very, very long period of time. And so we have to use them judiciously, but we can't get into the situation where we, where we go the other way and say, oh my God, stretching is bad. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, this is bad. Mm-hmm. Yoga is bad. Mm-hmm. And we can't sort of scare our students from using and, and being inside their body. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing, and, and I'm just saying sort of similar things, but in a slightly different way, is in any other physical endeavor... If you did it every day for a long period of time, you would naturally expect that there might be some risks involved. Especially that there might in be your some injuries. middle ages. <laughs> right, right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like yeah. we are in our middle ages. Yeah. So we have to remember that this is not a magical practice. No. It's there is a very no practical practice. Professional athlete that is even close to our age because a body can't hold up to extremes for a super long time. Mm-hmm. So we're delusional if we don't think that these demands that we're putting on in yoga have some extremes. Mm-hmm. So that's that's where it's just, yes.
Well, let me let me jump to something totally separate because I think this is important, which is in addition to the having the cultural change of not over glorifying range of motion and not having every single yoga instruction about being going further or amp it up, right? And if you're in that situation, you need to reconsider that situation. The other thing that has to stop or change ultimately is how people are adjusted and who's adjusted. Oh yeah, I was going to bring that up. How people are adjusted and who's adjusted. Who is the easiest person to adjust? The flexible person. The pretty, young, flexible person that has clear lines and is already doing the pose well enough that all you have to do is push them further into mm-hmm. the pose. Okay? And so it's an educational thing. It's a cultural thing. It's that, it's that that person is the person that's adjusted, honestly, because they're the easiest to adjust. It takes nothing It takes no skill. It takes no refinement. It takes no experience. It takes no depth or understanding of what this discipline is. To push someone that is 110% into a pose further into the pose. So that's where that comes from, right? Who is the hardest person to adjust? The dude in the back of the room. Who can't. With the puddle of sweat that goes like for miles. And he's huge. And he's like huge. (laughs) He's like a mountain. A total mountain. Yeah. Right? And has like a sweatband on that's not working. (laughs) Right? And needs like seven bolsters and eight straps. Right? And you can say this because you were that guy at one point. Except for the huge part and the sweat part. I don't really sweat when I do yoga. But anyways, that's the other cultural thing is people that have – extreme aptitude or clear lines or a lot of range of motion, like those are the people that I almost never adjust. I never go to them. I also, to be honest, don't tend to go to the person in the corner that Mm -hmm. I just described. I tend to go to middle, Mm -hmm. like the middle, Mm -hmm. like the people that need a little bit more guidance. Mm -hmm. But also this is a sort of totally different conversation. I don't do- Deepening, right? I have a totally different approach to it. I don't move the thing that moves. I just provide greater stabilization so they can move their own body further without my pressure. So it's a totally different process that's sort of beyond the scope of this conversation. But but that's the other thing. So the, the sort of the culture that fetishizes flexibility, the unconscious verbal cueing that is not about waking up the whole pose but is about moving something further. Mm -hmm. And then the people constantly getting adjusted that are the people that are getting adjusted because they're the easiest to adjust. Mm -hmm. Right, right, right. And and the people that actually benefit the least. Yeah. Uh, So I'm going to address that from the perspective of the person who was the young hypermobile girl at one point. And, you know, I can remember the day in my uh, Mysore Shanga practice where, you know, after seemingly forever working on Supta Karmasana, which is basically like... Oh, it's brutal. <laughs> it's basically like both legs behind your head, except you're folded forward and your arms are clasped behind your back. It's insane. But I wanted it so bad, right? It doesn't. And the teacher finally got me into the pose. <laughs> and I remember feeling like... Did you little, finally love yourself? I felt like a little crack in my sternum. <laughs> in my sternum. Yeah, costal cartilage. Go for it. And I thought to myself... That can't have been a good idea, right? So, but uh, did I scream? No. Did I tell her it hurt? No. She wouldn't have known. 
so my, my point in telling that little story is I learned being that really flexible young person after a while to just tell people I didn't want them to touch me. And, you know, it can seem a little rude or, you know, like I never like stomped around my mat and made a big deal about it. But if someone came up to me, I would just say like, you know what? I'm working with someone right now, something right now. I just don't want to be adjusted. Yeah. Or just I would even just even if you just kind of like shake your head, people will get the sense of like that person's working with something they don't want to be adjusted. So it took some bad experiences for me, but I I learned to only trust certain teachers who I knew, not new teachers, not assistants roaming around, mm-hmm. young people. I learned to only trust certain people with my little fragile system at that point in my life. Yeah. And now, like you said, I'm middle-aged. I'm not as flexible and nobody adjusts me anymore. <laughs> it's so great. <laughs> it's so great. Except Steph. Steph and of well, course you know, I would let Steph the, touch me. Um, at Love Story, they they now have the the please do not assist me chips. Oh, I didn't know that. And this is really important, you know, for those of you listening that own a studio or that teach at a studio that that want to engage with this. People ask me all the time in trainings, like, do you ask if I can if you can assist someone or not? And and I don't. If I'm going to give an adjustment, I don't I don't ask. But I think that it's a very good idea for all yoga studios to have. Please do not assist me, chips. That is so great. Yeah, it's just like a poker chip or something. And and when you register, there's a big basket. Oh, I love it. Right? Register is a big basket. Do not assist, do not assist me. The other way that I see t- teachers could use those chips is they could have them at the beginning of class and they they you have to make it really easy for the students to accept it, which is to say say something like, Hey, if anyone doesn't want any adjustments because they're working with an injury or anything like that. That because some students will try to protect their teacher's feelings. Sure, of course. Right. You don't want to be a bother. I, right. I, I had that for a long time. So by saying, come get one of these do not assist me chips, put out the front of the mat, then I won't assist you either because you don't want manual adjustments or because you're working with an injury or you're going through something you don't want touch. Like, I think that this should become an institutionalized practice. Yeah. It, it has to be. It needs to be an easier question to manage. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it really does. And the more experienced the student is and the more comfortable in their own self that the student is, the easier it is to pick up one of those chips and say, no, thanks. But but this, this should really be an institutionalized thing. The first t- time I ever saw it was at Rusty's old place, oh, Urban okay. Flow. Okay. They, they did it there. And they did a really great job of... Like you walked in and there was a big sign. You couldn't miss the sign. Please do not assist me, Chip. Take this chip, put it at the front of your mat if you do not want manual adjustments. I am such a space case. I've been in both of those studios and never noticed. So I'm very glad. Well, well, nice work. Yeah. No, it's nice to hear that. That's. I mean, that's brilliant. It's brilliant because it's like laughably simple and obvious. It's one of these things of like, as a community, we need to keep figuring out how to manage mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the And also, I mean, even, even when I've had teachers ask me, just having to be verbal in the middle of a yoga class can, can be a little uncomfortable slash intimidating slash in it's the awkward. moment, you might just go like, sure, you can it's adjust awkward. me. So, so And also as a student, you want it to work in the moment. You want yeah. it to work. You're warm. Yeah. You're warm. You're moving. You're part of a group situation. You want it to work. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yoga's good for you. <laughs> Extreme things are typically not. Right. 
And, you know, another takeaway is trust yourself. And, oh, one more thing I wanted to say about Jill. This is the thing I had forgotten. I loved in the beginning of our conversation, she said, you know, Andrea, I am just a lemonade person. So I am just trying to make these lemons into lemonade. And, and I, you know, what I take from her and that quote that I read in the interview that we did is that all of this has been a learning experience for her. It's all part of her journey. She knew that her body was hurting. So she created this whole other practice to help herself and to help others and to learn more and more. And that, and, and so that at the end of the day, like that's what we're here for. Totally. That's what we're here to do. Totally. Yeah. We're going to keep saying one more thing (laughs) until this is an infinite podcast. It's just going to end up being a a live stream. Three hours. Just a constant live stream, (laughs) which is your yoga practice doesn't have to be your everything. Right, I think that one of the challenges in in the sort of modern era we're in is we sort of think everything has to be everything, right? Like everything has to contain everything, and yoga actually doesn't have to contain everything, you know. And I think that we are going to yoga practice deep down underneath it all. Like this is a weird place where I am a lemonade person because I'm usually not. It's not my personality. I'm sort of you're getting to be more so. Oh man, (laughs) but I guess the point that I'm trying to live or say is that. This practice is ultimately about our ability to connect and pay attention to what's happening as it's happening. It's not about flexibility. It's not about range of motion. Those are nice byproducts. It's not really even about strengthening or functional training. It's about our ability to be embodied and to be well and and to be well regulated. So we have to keep that stuff at top of mind when we are doing all of this work. Right. That's all. Okay. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being here. My booking agent finally got to you, huh? Wore me down yet again. All right. Thank you. Later. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to leave a five-star review on iTunes if you enjoy the podcast. I know that probably everyone on every podcast you've ever listened to says that, but that's because it helps more than pretty much anything. I noticed that when I get a flood of reviews, I can find my own podcast more easily on iTunes, which means other people can find it too. And if you don't know how to leave a review, we've made it really easy. You can go to jasonyoga.com reviews and it walks you through the process. All right, guys, as Jason mentioned, I've got Roger Cole on the podcast next week. I've already spoken to him and it is such an inspiring conversation. He is just a wonderful combination of the art and science of yoga. So tune in next week and until next week, enjoy your practice.